there, and we are in chapter 12 today. Uh, last week, we started a new series on the foundations of faith, and what are sort of the ABCs of faith is what we're looking at through the life of Abraham, and ultimately, we're looking at how Abraham uh, foreshadowed and was the forerunner to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you missed last week, you can find it online, and uh, the message will be up there for you. You know, it's one of the most awkward moments at a birthday party or maybe a Christmas gift exchange. Perhaps you've experienced it a time or two, especially if, if you uh, have children. Uh, you receive this gift, and it, it's really exciting because everybody, you know, loves gifts, and, and uh, you open it up ferociously, and that feeling of excitement quickly changes into confusion because you have absolutely no idea what in the world this thing is that this person just gave you. And not only do you not know what it is, you don't know what it's to be used for. You know, there's this great scene in the, uh, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding is about this, this woman named Tula. She has this very, very large, very, very Greek family. They're all about being uh, Greek. And uh, this family always assumed that Tula was going to be like the old maid. Uh, and so one day she ended up getting sort of like this makeover and she ends up attracting this guy named Ian and they, they start dating and, and they get engaged. And, and the time comes for um, Ian's family, and it's just, you know, his parents, he's an only child, to meet uh, Tula's family, which is quite large. And it was supposed to be a small gathering. And Ian's parents show up, and it's not a small gathering. It's got the entire family there, which is like 40 or 50 people out there roasting lamb and doing all sorts of stuff. And, the, and Ian's mom, she wants to be a gracious guest, and she brings this bunt cake as a gift. And it's given to uh, Tula's mother, and she looks at it, and the first problem is that she can't even pronounce the word bunt. She's sitting there, trying, bunt, bunt, bunt. she can't even say it. And it's obvious she doesn't know what in the world it is. And finally, someone says to her, hey, it's a cake. She goes, oh, it's a cake. But then we realize that she still has no idea that it's a cake because later on in the party, she comes bringing the cake back and the hole has dirt filled in it and there's a flower sticking out of it. And she puts it in front of Ian's parents and she says, there, I fixed it. She has no idea what a bunt cake is, and because of that, she has no idea what it's to be used for. And you know, many of us, we approach faith in that same exact way. We know that faith is a gift, we know that, that, that we need it, yet we aren't exactly sure what it means or what we're supposed to do with it. You know, last week we were introduced to this man named Abram, who would later become uh, Abraham as we know him. He's one of the most significant and important figures throughout world history. Uh, we got introduced to his background of paganism and heartbreak and failure. And this week we we're really going to start diving into his, his story from when God calls him. And through it, we're going to look at faith in very fundamental ways. We're going to look at what faith demands and how all of these demands are taken care of by the one who Abraham is the forerunner to, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, it'll be on the screen for you, but I invite you to, to read along in your Bibles. Uh, you might have a different translation than me, and that's okay. Uh, but uh, follow along with me, starting in verse 1. This is what Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and, I'll, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all of his possessions that they had accumulated, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, through the, uh, through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the, on the west and I on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and called upon the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. And there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account." When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why, didn't, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had had. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand what faith looks like, what it demands, and how the grace of, uh, of you through your Son, Jesus Christ, ministers to us, Lord, when we fail and when we uh, desperately uh, need him, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So we're looking at three uh, things that faith demands this morning. And the first thing that we need to see is that faith demands total commitment. Faith demands total commitment. You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, the time in which Abram was, was born too, uh, the family was everything. Everything uh, that was important, your past, your present, your future was bound up in the family unit. Uh, a father's legacy was tied directly to, uh, to his son to take on the family trade. A parent's future geriatric care 
was uh, necessitated upon uh, their children taking care of them. And though there were a lot of societies here, uh, most of them were tribal, and those tribes sort of ran uh, in, in family units. And for a nomadic culture, sort of like the one that, that Abram uh, came out of, the family depended on each other for their very survival. They couldn't make it without the family. So in verse 1, uh, notice that when the Lord calls Abram, uh, which, by the way, remember that Abram, he was a, a moon worshiper at this time. He didn't know Yahweh. He didn't know the Lord. And he says, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. So notice that God here wasn't asking Abram to just go get a new lease on life, go uh, see some new scenery. Rather, he was commanding Abram to forsake everything that he knew in order to follow him, his culture, his customs, his lifestyle, even his own family. Now, notice the progression here that is presented uh, from the, uh, uh, of the Lord's command. He says, first, go out from your land. Well, for Abram, that'd be easy. He's a nomad. Go out from whatever land he's from. It's not a big deal. Then go out from uh, your relatives. Well, my cousins, I didn't care much about them anyway, so I'll go away from them. But then finally it says, and your father's house. My father's house? No way. That is absolutely impossible. My entire future rests on my taking over my father's house. His future rests on me. And you're asking me to leave him and everything that I know in order to go to a land that I don't even know where you're sending me from a God that I don't even really know? So God here calls Abram from his least important commitments to his most important commitments. And so far in Genesis, we've seen God as the sovereign creator. He is the ruler of the entire universe. And it is only this kind of being, a sovereign ruler, that can give such a radical command that his hearers must obey these are uncompromising words. But we have learned that not only is God the sovereign ruler, but he's, he is not an oppressive Lord. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is good to all. And so his commands here to Abram are not oppressive. They're for Abraham's good and for the good of uh, the world, as we'll see here. And he gives Abram reasons to follow him in faithful obedience. Notice in verse 2, he gives Abram some very personal promises. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Notice here that, that he commands Abram with obedience to his command to, to forsake all and to follow God's word to a place that he knows nothing about. But he promises him great benefits. 
and promising to make him of a, a great nation, what he is essentially saying is that influential cultures throughout all of history are going to come from him, and indeed that is true. From Abram comes both the Arabs and the Hebrews. And indeed, uh, they will prosper. You can just imagine the difficulty that Abraham, Abram faced here knowing that he, that he was married to an infertile woman. He's got this promise of the nations coming from him, but yet he has no children. And in saying that he will bless him, God is promising him that his plan will not fail. It is sure to pass because this is God that is calling it to him. It will go well with Abram. Now, notice that when God makes a promise to make his name great, he is referring back to what happened at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. And if you remember, uh, in chapter 11, the people at Babel, they proposed to build this, this huge tower, and among the reasons for them building this big tower was that they said that they will make themselves a great name. It says in chapter 11, verse 4, they said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky.'" Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. So what was their point? To give themselves a name, to be great. But in their pride, in their self-sufficiency, they tried to build a tower that would make them famous. What was the result? They became infamous, not famous. And that's because no one, not me, not you, nobody in this world can ever build anything of value out of the brick and mortar of pride and arrogance. You can't build a legacy a reputation. You can't even make a lasting difference in this world and beyond when pride and self-sufficiency are what you are building them on. But yet, here in chapter 12, verse 2, God informs Abram where a great name comes from. He tells Abram where a good reputation comes from. He tells Abram where a legacy comes from. And he tells him that these things only come when God gives them to somebody. It is him that makes our name great. It is him that blesses us and helps us prosper in this way. He says, I will make your name great. And he will use that great name in order to affect the world for good. Notice that God promises Abram that he will make him a blessing. Because of uh, Abram, the world will be better off. We can see this in the short term, but we also see this in the long term of God's plan because this blessing of Abraham would lead eventually to the blessing of the world by Jesus Christ. God is laying the foundation here with Abram uh, of the line that he would bring to save the world from their sin. And that's principally why in verse 3, God is specific 
that the blessing that God is going to give to Abraham is not just a reason for Abram to, to brag or to uh, celebrate. It was so that the world could be saved through his descendant. See, any blessing that God gives to us is not meant necessarily just for our good. It is meant to be uh, a blessing for others as well. And because it, it ended up in Jesus Christ, there are certain promises that God makes Abram in relation to uh, how other people treat him. Look in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who, who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So anyone who receives Abram and his place of prominence in, in God's plan will be blessed. Anyone that rejects uh, Abram's plan to um, God's plan for Abram to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world, will be cursed. Why does he do this? He does this because thousands of years later, Jesus, uh, John would say about Jesus in chapter uh, 1, verse 13, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God those who believe in his name. So why were those who blessed Abram blessed by God? It has to do with Jesus Christ. But then also look in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and following. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me, let's go back one more slide here. There we go. Will acknowledge me before others. I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Abram from all these years ago. And now because Jesus has supremacy, because of his primacy, because he is the, the promised seed of Abram, because he lives sinlessly, because he died in our place, because he rose from the dead, he has the right now to command you and I to give up everything and follow him. This is not a negotiation. We don't get to ask Jesus if, if we can have a say in this. He commands us. It is a sovereign command of the king of ages who knows his worth and bids us, come, come and leave your sin and follow me. Leave your baggage. Leave your struggles. Leave your vices and follow me. I promise that if you do that, if you, if you give up all for me, it will be totally worth it. And his command demands no less than what Abram received. Look now in verse, uh, chapter 10, verses uh, 37 through 39. The one who loves a father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. You, you see, faith demands commitment. 
We strive toward this. We strive to be all in. But isn't it true that in the Christian life, it's not always how it works out? Life happens and we falter. We, we maybe uh, don't follow what God is asking us to do. But we can take heart because we have the encouragement knowing that even when we falter, Christ's work on our behalf is sufficient for our lack of faith, and we are accepted by God. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. Faith demands being all in, and being all in on faith means, uh, means not only uh, going to Christ when we, when we fall, but it also means uh, making a commitment to obey and worship him. And that's our second point today. Faith demands obedience, and it demands worship. In verse 1, the Lord commands Abram to do something completely radical. Leave everything that's important to you and go to a place that I'm calling you to. I'm not going to tell you where it is. Just get on the road and stop when I tell you to stop. You ever taken a, a road trip like that? Maybe some of you have, but... Now, if Abram were a typical person in a typical church and he was asked to do something sort of out of the box, um, here is a, a typical response that, that a, a church leader will receive. Golly, I never, really, I never really thought about doing something like that. I don't, I don't know if that's in my skill set. I don't know if that's part of my giftings. But uh, you know what, Pastor? I'll, I'll pray about it and I'll, I'll get back to you. Now, we certainly trust that some of you really do pray about God's leading you into a certain ministry and you should be led by God. But sometimes we can't help but wonder if saying, you know what, that's not my skill set, I'm just going to pray about it, is sort of like Christian lingo for saying, I don't want to tell no to your face right now, but I'm going to make it sound more spiritual and I'm going to hope that you don't ask me in a week. And that is not what uh, God calls us to. Do you notice that Abraham doesn't say that? He doesn't say, well, I don't know. I've never really done that before. Uh, Why don't you go find someone else? Moses says that, and God gives him a verbal spanking for it. But there's no questioning the wisdom or whether this is a good idea. Verse 3 simply says, Abram went, and you can underline this if you're one of those type of people, as the Lord had told him. Was it scary for him? Yeah, probably. But faith is not the absence of fear. It is faith and trust in the midst of fear. It takes a certain kind of courage to follow God regardless of the cost. Was it out of his comfort zone? You bet it was. But faith is not the coddling of comfort. It is losing yourself for something greater than yourself. Was it in line with his perceived spiritual gifts? 
Probably not. But faith is knowing that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So in spite of all of these potential uh, objections, Abram realizes that the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe called him to go based on just trusting him. And he did this when he was 75 years old. Now, today we would think of 75, and I hope I'm not picking on anyone here, as sort of the sunset years. But God is just beginning to use Abram. So regardless of what age you are at, some of your most fruitful ministry years may be after retirement. Some of your most fruitful years may be when you actually think that it's time for someone else to take the reins. God equips you wherever you are in your life. Is there a place for discernment? Absolutely. But how does your plan for your life and your plan for your family's life line up for what you know God is calling you to? Are you and God on the same page here? For some of us, that obedience means having the courage to say to our children, I know you love playing that sport, but we're not going to play that sport this winter because they play on Sundays. And we worship the Lord on Sundays as a family. And so we are going to make that sacrifice and do that, and worship with God's family. For some of us, it's simply having that conversation, that awkward conversation that we've been putting off for so long that we know we ought to have, and we know the Lord is calling us to, but we go into it. For some of us, it means that obedience is calling us to to do something new for the Lord in whatever season of life that we're in, and it might be uncomfortable, it might make us nervous, but we know that, that Jesus has said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and we trust it, and we go for it. <clears throat> for some of us, it's stepping up into a ministry here at the church or in the community. Whatever it is, Christ is equipping you and he is calling you. The question is, will you hear that call? And will you obey that call in faith? But not only are we called to obey, but notice that we're also called to worship the Lord. To worship is to put God in a prominent place, a place of primacy before all other things. It is to make the Lord number one in your life. Now look at at me in verse 5. He took Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out uh, for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh, At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So, here's this response. 
He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, I didn't do this research, uh, and I probably should have, but I think this is the first time the Lord has appeared to anyone in Scripture outside of Adam and Eve. The Lord's doing something big here. And in Abram's day, building an altar meant worship. It was sacrificing something. It was not a private thing. It was done openly in the public. Other people would have seen this happen. And keep in mind, it says that he was in Canaan at the Oak of Moray. So here he is in an open land surrounded by pagans who don't know the Lord, who are wicked and violent and seeing what he is doing. And he th- he th- well, he's not really throwing caution to the wind because he trusts God and says, I am reclaiming this land for the Lord. I am setting up this altar, and I'm going to worship him here. And it must have had an impact, because notice in verse 5, when it says that he took these people that he had acquired, it's not talking about slaves. The wording there is closer to the idea of converts, proselytes, that had heard him preaching about the glories of of Yahweh, uh, the, the Hebrew God, the God of the universe. And they believed. And they followed Abram in faith. And notice he just doesn't stay in Moray. Verse 8 says he moved to the hill country between Bethel and, and Ai, builds an altar, then he goes to the Negev, which is in the south, and it's implied that he, he does the same there. And part of his worship here is setting up these, these altars is that he is reclaiming the land for the Lord. He is going back uh, to these places and, and reclaiming it for the Lord who is deserving of this worship in contrast to the pagan worship that is going on. Does your life look anything like this? You know, we don't set up altars because altars are, uh, they are obsolete. Christ has been sacrificed once for all. We no longer need altars. But in your life, have you given Christ supremacy in all things? Have you reclaimed Christ's authority in those areas that he is not currently Lord of? Is he the Lord of your family? Is he the Lord of your finances? Is he the Lord of your sexuality? Is he the Lord of your your private life? Is he the Lord of your career? Are you devoting everything that you have to the glory of God by worshiping him and using those gracious things from him as avenues by which we can worship him? You see, worship is not something that we just do once a week on a Sunday, coming together as a collected body of believers, singing a few songs, hearing a word preached, and then going back to our lives. Worship is what you and I are called to do every moment of every day, and Christ asks us to use everything that we're doing for his glory and for our good. How are you doing in that?
If you're like me, man, I could use a lot of work. But Christ is worthy, and he calls us to it. So we need to obey and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, faith demands integrity. Faith demands integrity. You know, the Oxford Dictionary defines integrity as the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. That's that's a decent definition. It's not a biblical definition. I would say that in Christian terms, this is how we should look at integrity. Integrity is always doing the right thing, even when no one else is looking, regardless of the cost. Integrity is always doing the right thing even when no one is looking, regardless of the cost. That, friends, is tough. Because even if we're in Christ, we still have this residual life of sin that likes to creep up into our lives and into our hearts and say, hey, remember me? I want to be the Lord of your life. And we have these struggles. And Abram wasn't immune to that. In fact, he displays a certain kind of uh, lack of integrity that most of us, I think, struggle with, but don't even know that it's something that we have a problem with. And that is how we face fear especially when the threat goes against what we think is God's plan. Let me explain. Look in verse 10. There's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Uh, Egypt had, uh, you know, has the Nile. And so in many times when the when the ancient Near East would have a drought. People would flock to uh, Egypt because there would be fertile land that has, has food. We'll see that in other places in the Bible, too. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, there's a genius plan here, by the way, look, I know you're a beautiful woman. Uh, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. Abram's getting father of, uh, no, he's getting husband of the year on this plan. And it'd be easy to say, just say, well, he's just trying to save his own hide and that would be true, but notice that it is much, much deeper than that. Here is a man that has given up everything that he uh, held dear uh, to follow this God that he doesn't know very well, but he is convinced by. He is convinced that God is going to bless him, to make him a great nation, to give him a great name, but we're talking about Egypt here. Egypt is the superpower of the day. Egypt is a great nation. This God called him, but this God, he might not 
be as powerful as these Egyptian gods. So in order to protect God's promise, Abram devises a plan to protect himself. Unfortunately, he does so at the cost of his wife. Apparently, she was quite stunning. She was about 65 at this time, and, and uh, in the ancient Near East at this time, 65 was the new 40. And um, so here she is. She's this beautiful woman. Abram figured that if he could convince them that he was her brother, which he was, he was a half-brother, that he would have the protective rights for potential suitors. Someone would come and say, Abram, your sister is very beautiful. Can I, can I marry her? Well, he figured, great, yeah. No, you can't. That's my sister. Get out of here, you chump. He was figuring he was just going to protect her in that. However, he did not calculate the power of the Pharaoh. With Pharaoh, there is no negotiation. Here's this hot single gal that's just come into the land, and, and he says, I want her for my wife. Guess what? There's no arguing here. Abram doesn't get to negotiate. He gets a dowry for it. He gets a lot of camels, which are quite expensive at this time. He, he got rich off of this scheme. But notice what Pharaoh gets here. Do you see the irony? Pharaoh gets plagues. The irony here is that God's man is the scoundrel, and the pagan is the one that's doing the right thing. God will often use unbelievers to shame us. Verse 18, Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Here's your wife. Take her and go. There are allusions to Exodus here. Uh, Pharaoh gets plagued. He gets embarrassed. He kicks out Abram and his wife out of Egypt. And can you even imagine the conversation on the way back to Canaan? If there even was one. But notice what Abram learned here. Faith does not guarantee security. And security cannot come from sinful ingenuity. In his fundamental disbelief, Abram fails to trust God with his future. Yet God still sovereignly protects Abram and his promise. I wonder if you and I find ourselves in similar ways. We've trusted Christ with our past and our present, but that future, he can't have a grip on that. There's no way that Christ has control over what's to come. So what do we do? We take matters into our own hands and disaster ensues. Some of us, we may not know it now, but when push comes to shove, we will be ready and willing to throw the people that are closest to us under the bus in order to protect what we think God is doing in our lives in the name of faith. Faith demands integrity. Regardless, 
of the cost. And though we fail miserably at this, we can take heart. We can be encouraged. God has overcome our failure to be consistent in our character. Whereas Abraham uh, used uh, deception to employ uh, or to, to further God's plan, Jesus Christ held to the truth throughout his entire life all the way to death on a cross. The one who had the promise by which all nations would be his inheritance uh, never threw anyone under the bus. He was never manipulative. He always did what was right, never skirted integrity. Abraham lied to the most powerful nation in order to save his skin. And when Christ was called to confess to Pontius Pilate, he confessed the good confession that he is. He is the Lord. His kingdom's not of this world, but he is the Lord. By faith in him, we have been released from the punishment and the curse of our faithlessness. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow him in integrity. Will we be perfect? No. That's coming for another day, and that's going to be a glorious day. But for now, we cling to him to get us to and through what he calls us to in integrity. Faith is a gracious gift from God. It's a gift, but it comes with demands. And unless we see it fundamentally as a total commitment with obedience and worship and integrity, we will simply see faith as only a bunt cake with dirt and a flower coming out of it. We'll never understand it correctly. Jesus, as Lord over all, is worthy of putting your trust in for your past your present, and your future. Why not give your entire life to him today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your call is not easy, but it's glorious. Give us faith today, God, to cast aside all of those lesser things and let us redeem them for your cause for the gospel, for the glory of others as we make him known, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, would you stand with us in response um, to the Lord's call?